Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Live. This is an unannounced one. I apologize about that, but I do have two scheduled for tomorrow, one at 10 in the morning and one at 6 o'clock in the evening. I am uh, practicing my StreamYard here because I don't want to do StreamYard first with Dan Vogel. I have Dan Vogel on as a guest tomorrow night, so we're going to have a good time talking about Mormon history and Joseph Smith and many of the issues involved with Freemasonry. We will be discussing the book Method Infinite and Dan Vogel's interpretation of the anti-Masonic aspects of the Book of Mormon. And so, hey, Wendy Rowland, welcome. Chris Murphy and Scandia 70, or 67. Yeah, quite the dramatic intro. I'm finally getting caught up with trying to look half professional, so we shall see, huh? Fun stuff. So uh, what I want to do tonight, hey, Isa Morris, welcome from North Carolina. Thank you for showing up. Greetings on a Saturday afternoon. Um, in order to, I, I've discovered a really good introduction, basically, uh, for Dan Vogel for tomorrow night, kind of get us broke into the the historic mood, as it were, right? And so what I'd like to do, I have been reading this book, Faithful History, and it's edited by George D. Smith. Now, this is an older book, uh, Signature Books, 1992. So, I mean, <laughs> that's 30 years ago, man. It's amazing how fast 30 years go by. I just remember this like it was yesterday when it came out. But... Uh, about this time, I was just getting into Idaho State University. I acquired my bachelor's in history, uh, 1994, I believe it was. And, uh, and then nothing came of it because, hey, JT3865 from the Netherlands, welcome. John Rosbarski, yes, good to see you too, my friend. So um, I have read a couple of articles in this very well put together book, Faithful History, one by Neil W. Kramer. He was an English professor at the then Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho. And then another one that is directly after him by Melvin T. Smith. And I thought it was remarkable in reading these two gentlemen. Melvin T. Smith was the was the former director of the Utah State Historical Society and the Idaho State Historical Society. And so these two gentlemen were well established with the disciplined principles of composition and historical analysis. And yet they had, I'm not going to say an opposite approach. That's not quite the right thinking, but they had an approach that was we can juxtapose them because they actually approach it from different angles, almost opposite angles. And this is a wonderful way to get us in tune for tomorrow morning when I am going to expound on Dan Vogel's article in this book. And this is the profit uh, puzzle by Brian Waterman. He was the main editor. Now, this was 1999, I believe. Yes, 1999. And Vogel's article on the Prophet Puzzle Revisited is what I want to give you in the morning at 10 o'clock. And that will get us tuned up 
for Dan himself for tomorrow night. So we're going to go full Mormon history mode for this weekend. I've been doing a boatload of reading with uh, uh, an enormous, interesting amount of varieties of outlooks. Hey, Chris Murphy, good to see you. Welcome. Admitting history and changing the church, volume five. What are you talking about? Oh, volume one, faithful history, volume two, missing history, volume three, history from the first presidency vault, volume four, four and admitted. Uh, I want to, oh, faithful equals correlated. Well, that's true. In, in many respects, yes. <laughs> I love that. Volume six, Joseph Smith. Who? <laughs> yeah, that'll be a very important volume to, to read through, right? Let's see what Neil Kramer, now Now his basic approach I thought was quite interesting. And, and I'm going to admit, um, part of me is somewhat skeptical uh, because he is from Rick's College, right? And he was writing while he was employed by the church at Rick's College. And so he is basically giving a rundown, as it were, of the various, well, he describes the evolution of history. And it starts for him, the idea is how do we write history and the way, the methods, the, uh, the manner that historians have changed through the decades, through the centuries on how to write history has been very, very interesting. Yes, you are Chris Murphy and you're welcome to have fun. I'm glad you're here having fun. <laughs> That's fun. That's awesome. So what we have in Kramer is he's describing the Christian's teleological conception of history. Now, teleology uh, is, it means purpose. It means a direction. They write history to show you where humankind is going, so to speak, something to that effect. So, and the Christians, of course, because we want to live righteously on earth according to their doctrines so that we can acquire the goal of heaven, you know, accept Jesus Christ, God the Father, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, etc. Jesus Christ, his son, came and atoned for the sins of mankind to cover the fall of Adam, etc., so that we may accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and go to heaven. That's, that's the teleological aspect. Now, this persisted, according to Kramer, in Western civilization until the beginning of the Renaissance. Uh, at that time, scholars began rediscovering and translating other ancient texts. Now, it's interesting that those texts uh, by Ficino, I do believe, and the Medicis uh, had him translate those texts. They found them in Egypt, and they were the Hermetic literatures. And so those transformed everybody's approach to uh, understanding the past as well as our own selves with the hermetic materials. And they said the, uh, he says the resulting conflict then between the Hellenistic and Christian ideas of history helped produce an atmosphere in which a new conception could be nurtured. And so we begin to see a change with the philosophers of John Locke and David Hume. And what these gentlemen did, and, and this was way later, uh, this was past the Renaissance, uh, they articulated theories of how truth could be uncovered through careful study of the past. Hey, John Bradley, welcome, my friend. 
welcome. I'm just getting started. So you're, you're getting here just on time. And then in the 19th century, attempts at writing empirically verifiable, logically coherent cause and effect history. Whew, that's a mouthful, isn't it? But this is the approach that they began to take after Hume. Uh, there was no longer any need to interpret uh, and this is on page 133 and page 134 in this book, Faithful History, Kramer's articles. There's no longer any reason to interpret history with reference to God or to a divine plan. Um, because facts, when properly organized, interpret themselves. This was the approach that the... Uh, I, it, it's not... I don't think it's quite right to call them skeptical, but the philosophically oriented, perhaps those after David Hume, the idea here is history becomes a chronological narrative of events as they happened. When something happened, you wrote it down and, and there was no need to interpret what it meant, whether, <laughs> whether on this earth, in your life right now, wherever it is on planet Earth you are, or within the grand cosmological scheme involving heaven and Earth, that, that the later historians, the critical historians, said, no, you just record the events as they happen, of course. And all the historian required was tenacity. Uh, it was a set of rules for determining the validity of the evidence and access to the necessary primary sources so that we could see what happened. And that was the theme. The past had become an object for scientific inquiry. Uh, and evidence was judged by empirical standards. And so because it began to be judged by the empirical standards, whatever did not qualify as, quote, real, unquote, under the new guidelines was considered the result of ignorance or illness or superstition and so on. So the, the way of chronicling and interpreting shifted. It changed. Well, these are the foundation, not only of the historiography practiced by the German historian Leopold von Ranke, but also the positivist sociology of the French philosopher Auguste Comte, and the materialisms of Marxism, on the other hand, and the U the utilitarians on the other, the second half of the 19th century. So we're in the, this is post Joseph Smith in the late 1800s, the second half of the 19th century marks the high tide of the belief in the all encompassing ability of scientific methodologies to comprehend everything. And, and of course, this was the time of Darwin. Darwin uh, wrote his Origin of Species, and Thomas Huxley, of course, advocated for Darwin. And so now everything was going to be interpreted within a framework of empirical evidence for the past. And, and so this, this shift again, it began in England, and it, the logical positivists actually extended the limits of this epistemology. And what they did is they constructed a theory of knowledge, which in effect, what they wanted to accomplish was they equated all of knowledge with scientific knowledge. And so this is how this was the positivist program. And the theme is simply this. 
That which could not be verified through our senses or through our sensory experience, well, that's cognitively meaningless. So a challenge to the underpinning of logical positivism has been mounted in the 20th century, and much of the critique has centered on assumptions about language itself. See, positive positivism assumes that language is transparent. Uh, in other words, describing the world exactly as it is without being subject to any kind of a conceptual bias. In contrast, Ludwig Wittgenstein has shown that the use of language is based on a set of arbitrarily established rules. So that's very interesting because one who adopts a particular mode of thought thus interprets the rule or interprets the world according to the rules of his or her conceptual mode. In other words, it becomes really, now it becomes quite subjective. So, and then structuralists. These guys applied to a diverse group of thinkers, which included Claude Levi-Strauss, Roland Barthes, Jacques Lacan, Jean Piaget, and Michael Foucault. They developed similar ideas about how our use of language mirrors other activities of we humans. Foucault offers a lucid account of discourse. Now, here's his idea. Discourse itself, what I'm doing with you, discourse, is a set of restrictions on what we are or are not able to say. And his work stresses that we are limited in what we can know by what we can say about the world. So then along comes Derrida, Jacques Derrida. And he's another French philosopher. Now, he's tried to demonstrate the tenuousness of writing as the medium through which the world can be understood. His ideas deconstruct the language. And what he means by that is the meaning of something which was temporarily so obvious tends to disintegrate into possibilities for meaning that are incapable of describing the world as it is. So rather than opening up the world to our understanding, our very language ends up limiting how we can think about reality and what we can even claim to know, according to Derrida. Absolute knowledge becomes nothing more than a fleeting dream because of the limiting effects of language. So the idea here is adopting a set of rules or conventions is more of a gesture of what one wishes to talk about <laughs> rather than what is possible or possible to even know. So anyway, uh, hey, John Rosmarski. Now this, he's running through various different uh, philosophers of language and science and history, et cetera, just to show us the, uh, the ebb and flow of the history <laughs> of history, right? And so he says this understanding of the limitations of language, now this has implications for how we write Judeo-Christian history. And of course, Kramer's going to bring that up into the Mormon history as well, of course. So let's see this. What happens now is it demands a reevaluation of the basic philosophy and methodology 
of historiography. How do we then begin to write history? Because we we have to use language. You know, how do we uh, speak about history? Because we have to use language, right, to speak. And so this becomes kind of an interesting uh, conundrum here. What we have to do is we have to reevaluate our basic philosophy. The originators, those who started with the positivist tradition, effectively dismissed God from discourse about the past. That was more or less their essential contribution to the theme of history, is you eliminate God because there's no, I mean, if you stop and think about it, you can understand their rationale somewhat because the the positive the positivists the empiricists uh you have to work with what we know you know we use our senses what we can hear what we can see what we can taste touch smell that is the basis of our knowledge so if there is a posited being god will say that is way out there far away and not available for us to sit down and have a chat with, then there's no way that we should be wasting our time talking about that figure. That's the positivist approach to history. And in some regards, it makes sense. So, well, there was a sort of a kinship between their idea of progress. Uh, it kind of reminds us of the early Christian uh, teleological approach to history. The idea is history is going a certain direction into salvation is how the Christian would, would emulate that movement, that theme, right? So it's kind of a, a natural historical inertia is what we're looking at. So now it appears to be the case that religious experience can be described within its own linguistic contexts and it can also be evaluated on its own terms. So religious history does not need to be intimidated by a value system that reduces the experiences that religious writers describe to superstition. So one can strive to include the deep spiritual power of the past in a narrative instead of seeking a representation of the scientific facts. So this is Kramer's way of dealing with the, the, uh, the positivist theme that basically more or less swept all through history and the writing and understanding and teaching of history. So he says, belief in scientific history still proliferates among some professional historians and sociologists writing about Mormons today. Uh, says professional training in major graduate schools in the United States and Great Britain. These have been tended to be dominated, of course, by the scientific approach. So what this means is because of this scientific uh, underlying theme to history that many professional scholars have adopted the values that the scientific methodologies want us to understand. So a large portion of the scholarly writing on Mormonism, according to Kramer, today comes from people trained in those scientific and positivistic methods. So it comes as no surprise 
that such writing tends to try to fit the writing of the Mormon history, he calls it our history, within the limits of positivism. So that makes sense because that is uh, their philosophical upbringing through college in that day. Well, and professionally trained historians as well, they write for a specific audience, mainly other historians, right? I mean, some of these guys are so doggone dry, you can't read them anyway, right? But the other historians have to because it's their profession, yeah. So see, we're luckier than you think, right? <laughs> and these guys, they do go to professional schools to master a particular kind of a language so that they can communicate to other historians. And this has a peculiar way of thinking about the world. They then expect others who wish to communicate with them to adopt that same viewpoint that they have in order to make sense for what is being said. Now, that's kind of interesting. Now we kind of sit up and perk up and we go, huh? Whoa, wait, hold it. Is there only one way to communicate? See, the professional historians, the positivists, those who advocate these scientific methods say, well, yes, and that's the only legitimate way, right? So you can see that just by taking that approach, it narrows down our ability to grasp greater knowledge, doesn't it? Very interesting how this works. So when a work is generated, the, the popularity for the public, you know, the publicizers, Neither reader nor author is usually able to break the conceptual bonds that are imposed on them by the conventions of the professional history. And this, of course, hang on, I got to get a drink. This is what upset Boyd K. Packer in Mormonism. He said, I don't trust the historians. Well, the historians don't really care, but Packer could not, he wanted to not just have one way of looking at history because that was too narrow. And then when he found a group of people who would cooperate with him and accept his way, then he also began to eliminate all other ways. And so the irony is that his way of studying history also ended up being dogmatically narrow. Interesting how the pendulum swing did not solve the problem in Boyd K. Packer's situation. So that's fascinating. And then he says, I'm also interested in history. And he said, and I'm really not interested in, in arguing against the professional historians. I, I don't want to, uh, there's no real reason to take issue with them because yes they have a a certain manner of presenting the information that's true but their their evidences and their their materials as they assess them are better than probably what i can do and so in a way we're kind of stuck with the professional historians is basically how he's saying he says however there's another side of this that i think is also important to grasp and get to, and this is uh, how he puts it, he said, well, I feel that their authors 
must continue to be challenged by us, though, to include the divine in their work as they seek to explain the growth of the church and the accomplishments of the Latter-day Saints. Because by hedging our bets, couching our descriptions of spiritual experiences in ambiguous language, hiding our belief in the reality of revelation behind objective criteria, well, doing this, we can satisfy the expectations of colleagues, but the flip side of this, the downside, according to Kramer's version, is the risk of offending delicate testimonies. Such writing desacralizes a most sacred history. So, in some ways, he has a good point, right? Hey, Patricia Noel, welcome. Hey, Obadiah Bumbley. Hey, KG, welcome all you guys. So he's got a point, and here's what he says. He says, the, the Mormon community at large has generally avoided the intrusion of positivism into its experience. Indeed, Mormonism brought it with the reality of the divine in history. So Kramer, see the positivists, uh, more or less, for lack of a better way to describe it, essentially eliminated the divine out of history. The divine interaction, I'll put it, out of history. Kramer says that's a downside when we have a religious movement that functions with the divine in history. This is how Kramer is framing his particular take on how do we study history. He says, you know, the Book of Mormon itself testifies of this important facet of the religion, and some of the holiest experiences in church history have now become a sanctified part of scriptural record, you know, the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, etc. So we feel compelled to see in the restoration of the church the restoration of the knowledge that God plays a significant role in history. And so writing of it then serves to reveal sacred truths about God to all peoples. So he is against the positivist and, and the scientifically objective history that's a myth. That that does it doesn't <laughs> it can't happen that way. And so that's what he's against. He's saying, I'm advocating putting the sacred in to the history, because that's what these guys were claiming was happening to them. Orson Whitney, uh, Brigham Young, Orson Pratt, Parley Pratt, Heber C. Kimball, Joseph Smith, uh, Sarah Pratt. Uh, Lucy Smith, Emma Smith, that as they were going through their day-by-day -day processes, you know, Joseph Smith was off getting revelations, etc. He was calling men on missions, take these sacred scriptures, go teach those scriptures of an ancient record of God also being involved with people. So the holy, the sacred, has been intruding into history, if not completely in a smooth curve, then at least in a saltation-type 
punctuated equilibrious way, more or less. God has from time to time showed up and either helped or taught, etc. This is Kramer's approach to the idea of history. So he says, I am not against uh, putting the sacred into our history as we recount it from Joseph Smith's day up to our own. So that is basically his approach to it. And, and his ending is quite poignant. Uh, page 138 of this book, Faithful History, for those of you who came late, edited by George D. Smith. He says, see, it seems to me that this is the sort of history we need to have written by Mormon historians. Unfortunately, my experience with much of the history I've read dictates that most scholars don't take this approach. They actually resist, including the divine in history. So much of what happened in the early days of the church has not yet been written. Now, he's, he probably got that right. Yeah. So when it is, it will more than likely reveal personal apostasy as well as personal testimony. It will reveal personal weaknesses at times, as well as personal strength, of course, of course, even in the church's staunchest defenders. You notice he doesn't say the church's leaders. I'm going to add that. But he couldn't because he worked at Rick's, but I don't. So I did attend there, but I don't work there. So we need not gloss. We need not gloss over aspects of people's lives that do not match our expectations of them. It's okay to write an actual history of their experiences, whether they're sacred or not, whether they succeeded or failed, etc. He said, we, we, the more we include, the more fulfilling, the more complete, the history can be. That, that's essentially what he's saying. And he does say that. He says, so ultimately we cannot move away from what is for us an undeniable reality that the hand of God is revealed in the history of this church from its earliest days to the present. And the same God who appeared to Joseph Smith and revealed the gospel to him reveals his pleasure to today through his pleasure, sorry, to today's living prophet. If we claim any less, Kramer says, then we have forgotten what we really believe. So there is a historian advocating for including the divine in history. And right behind him in the next essay, chapter 10, Faithful History slash Secular Religion by Melvin T. Smith, he's going to advocate the opposite or at least a different emphasis, a different flavor um, because of how history is warped, which distorts it, which means we really don't get the truth when the divine and God is included in history. And so I want to check out his view too. This gives us a wonderful comparison contrast to go with. I love how this, uh, yes, uh, Chris Murphy is saying something very good. Actual history includes context. And John Rosbarski is saying, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this debate between the faithful historians and those who wish to uh, just simply tell the objective positivist truth of what we in our senses that we can understand uh, is a very interesting one. 
And through history, true believers have been uh, separated from the false apostates, etc., depending on whether you include and appreciate the divine in history or not. Now, this is kind of interesting, too. So he said, I remember talking with a young professor of history at Brigham Young University after I had completed coursework and comprehensive examinations for a PhD program there. I asked him, well, now that I'm a bona fide historian, what do I do with Joseph Smith? Well, I was surprised by his answer. For him, Joseph Smith presented no particular problem at all. And frankly, I felt a certain envy at his secure hold on faith, for I was by then seeing holes in my own faithful armor. So this gets interesting. I'm still asking myself the questions, what do we do with Joseph Smith and others who claim that they have had direct communication with God or other divine beings? And, he, and he's asking it as historians. How do we how do we manage that? How do we grasp? Is this tellable as actual history? That's his question. And so he said, I've also seen many of my colleagues struggle with their own version of just this issue. So, and there's already been considerable debate about what faithful history is. Uh what it is and how Latter-day Saints and Mormons who are historians ought to write it. And of course, and that comes from the leaders, that comes from other uh, historian colleagues within BYU or within the church education system. Uh, it comes both from within and without. And yet he says, for me, though, none of the arguments has proven wholly satisfactory. So I'm continuing my own probing of this subject. The primary purpose is to provide a rationale for believing historians, whereby they can produce objective professional history rather than so-called faithful history. And here again, his concern with the faithful history, though the kind that Neil Maxwell went out of his way to encourage many BYU or, or faculty members to become faithful disciple scholars is what he would call them, meaning that they would never share any historical situation which made Joseph Smith look bad or the Mormon church fault or the scriptures contradictory and bad or Fake. The, the faithful disciple scholar writes faithful history because that's where the real truth and testimony is, which is a distorting of the actual objective history. This is Melvin T. Smith's approach. Kind of interesting how they compare and contrast with, with that last approach of, uh, oh, I forgot his name already. Neil W. Kramer, who, who also had a very interesting point of view about how to write history. And, and again, for those of you who came late, the reason I'm discussing this right now is because I am, uh, I, I am getting ready for Dan Vogel tomorrow night. And in the morning, I'm going to present, um, in the morning, I'm going to present, uh, 
one of Dan Vogel's papers that discuss the profit puzzle. How do we go about situating Joseph Smith? That's tricky. And granted, it's old. It's 20-year-old 20 paper, and yet it still has high applicability. So in order to get us into <laughs> the Mormon history groove, I'm, I'm doing this one today, and then tomorrow morning, one of Dan Vogel's scholarly treatments, then I will be discussing things with Dan Vogel in person for the next several weeks. Here's how he sees history. Now, this is, you'll notice he's not approaching it um, from a, when, whenever we hear the word positivist, whenever we hear the word uh, scientific, uh, objective, objectively scientific, whatever. When we hear that, when we have that kind of uh, wording, we, we automatically become suspect and we wonder, because it can't be 100% objective, not even from the person who went through the experience. And so that's, that's really interesting to, to have that. He said, my premise is simple. First, I see history as a finite tool used by very human men and women to study the lives, the behavior, and the institutions of finite human beings. Now, see, this isn't something that we get to argue with uh, philosophically or scientifically. I mean, we all know we're all finite. Very precious few of our great-grandparents are alive right now. Some may be, but they aren't going to be for another 70 years. Criminy, the vast majority of us in 70 years are not going to be alive anymore. We really are finite. He, he sees because the history uh, being written by us, by we humans, since we're finite, and of course our knowledge, our, our very ability to grasp what happened in the past or the cosmos or even any particular discipline that we have created as human beings, say the science or, or, or history or the philosophy, we just simply can't grasp it all. So there is a finitude here that is really important for this gentleman's philosophy, Melvin T. Smith. He says, even when one includes all of our human learning, Back, back from day one, all the way up to today, all of our human learning, which, of course, none of us can actually read all of that. I, I mean, that would just be hundreds of millions of books. And for every single book you've never read, you are 100% ignorant of that knowledge. So, again, we're finite. He says, so the... Uh, in in a sense, this is part of human history, but it's still finite. Additionally, the sources of history are only people. And now, no matter how important or how brilliant or wise or righteous we may be, we're still finite. That is a fundamental. Yeah. So history then, because of this situation we're in, History can only tell us about our finite world and about 
its finite inhabitants, which message, however, makes the pursuit of good history worthwhile. So it's, it's not that he's being negative. It's that he's trying to approach this from a, 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 a validity, a valid, realistic approach to say, look, this is how it works. We're finite, and so is our history. The fact that God is not finite, but that we are, is irrelevant to us being able to uh, do our history in a finite manner. He says, now my premise two. In premise two, I accept that there may be an infinite reality called the realm of God. I mean, you can call it divine, whatever you want to call it, but there is a realm of infinite reality. And I also allow that God may choose or Perhaps he could may have chosen to communicate with finite human beings at various times and for his own purposes. However, witnessing to divinity is God's domain alone. So if such a witness is to be given, human beings can't do it, and especially historians with history can't do it. History tells us about people, not about God. Uh, the terms faith, religion. These are related to the faithful history debate. These are inexorably tied to a belief and a hope in God. That's true. The acquisition of religious or faithful insights into reality are usually reported to be very good by those who have claimed them, of course. So one's quest for faith and religious witnessing seems worthy of one's best efforts. However, this isn't an attempt to explore or to explain the value and meaning of such religious experiences. And he says the reason why is because of his third premise. And his third premise here, he says, the fascinating thing about his third premise is, there is value in keeping... I'm going to throw another banner on you. There is value in keeping the information of these two worlds apart from each other while we insist on pursuing the truths or the insights to be gained from each. Since believing historians are both historian and believer, there will be for them a continuous interplay of information from each of the sources. We understand that. So the historian's major challenge will be to use only historic data in premising their research and in drawing their conclusions. Otherwise, their history will be faithful history, about which I will say more later. In other words, if he's advocating that the believing historian does not include belief in the history of someone else because it's going to distort and warp the history. It's where he's heading with this. It's kind of an interesting approach, isn't it? So he says 
in my opinion, it's ultimately within each of us that our truths and realities are best dealt with. And, and hopefully this is done in positive uh, ways, in constructive ways. And he says, let me add that it is after truths and insights of both human learning, history, and divine witnessing God are received that each person must then struggle in order to give these experiences and understandings meaning. And that's the key right there. Because the meaning is for the individual historian. So those struggling may find the services of theologians or philosophers or ministers very useful indeed. Perhaps the scriptural analogy that the kingdom of God is within us is relevant. And he quotes Luke 17, 20 and 21. Now to return to the faithful history issue. And, and I really like this issue. Um, I, I think the, uh, the adjective faithful in front of history is in so many regards uh, a dead giveaway to the problem. I don't think that can be done because faithful is subjective to those who are in power over others. They get to decide who is faithful and who isn't based on their personal desires, wishes, wants, and hopes, right? So, the capability of, of distorting a history in Mormonism because Boyd K. Packer does not like telling all the truths because some truths aren't very useful uh, to him, right? You can see the bias immediately through that particular policy. Yeah. So th this gets really tricky here. A basic problem arises for believing historians when they see themselves judging their historical data in light of perceived superior facts or truths. Yes, all historians of professional stature know the tenuous nature of their conclusions drawn from never completed research. We get that. There's no way it can be complete. Even if you are this magnificent man, D. Michael Quinn, Mormon Hierarchy, Origins of Power. Look, that cotton-picking thing is 800 pages. It's jihugic. It's so big, 99.9% .9 of us are never going to be able to read it. But it's still incomplete, right? It, it can't possibly be the totality of history of the Mormon hierarchy's origins of power. It is a particular view of a particular, again, finite historian. And we get that. We understand that. So perhaps it would be helpful at this point to suggest a more useful definition of faithful history. It is simply history, so-called, written either to prove or disprove the things of faith and religion or God, his will and ways. Mormons find they have the well-known writings of both Joseph Fielding Smith's Essentials in Church History, proof positive, and Gerald and Sandra Tanner, Mormonism, Shadow or Reality, which is proof negative. Neither is good history, and it seems doubtful that either is a viable fountain for faith or disbelief. Now, that was Melvin T. Smith. Now, what is really interesting is he was actually wrong on this. 
We've learned now. Uh, remember, he wrote this in 1999, so this was quite a while ago. But uh, man, within the last 20 years, we've discovered that the Tanners were way more accurate than many of the Mormon historians themselves were, right? So you again, even though he is trying to be, uh, he's trying to, uh, the impression I get is he's going to compartmentalize history of quit worrying about writing faithful history, but keep God on one side and ourselves involved in the other. <laughs> Don't mix the two because one is about the infinite and the other is about the finite. And since we are the finite, then that is where we should focus is on the finite. And it, it does make respectably good sense. It truly does. And this is going to tie in so well with Dan Vogel's essay that I'm going to share with you tomorrow on the profit puzzle. And then, of course, I'm going to be able to discuss more of Dan's philosophy because you got to realize he wrote this 20 years ago, too. And he was bringing it up to date from 20 years before this time. So we're 40 years removed away. It's going to be fun to interview him tomorrow night and see how the upgrade goes. So this is quite interesting to see the various approaches. So on the one hand, we have a gentleman who has said that we almost by default, we have to bring in the sacred. We have to, we have to include the divine in our history, or else it's not going to make sense of our history. And then we have another Mormon historian, Melvin T. Smith, who says pretty much the opposite. He says, no, um, it, it can't help but distort our finite understanding and approach uh, to try to mix it with the infinite. And yet the infinite is very real, yes, but at our level of humanity and understanding and grasping, in, in our actual limited ability to just sift through all this stuff, all these books behind me, you know, that takes time because I'm a finite being. And then even if I can include absolutely everything in every one of these books into one book that would end up having to be 30 feet tall and absolutely nobody could read it anyway, which would be self-defeating and idiotic to try to do. And yet the finiteness, incomplete though it is, is the best approach to the history. So we have this juxtaposition. We have this actually separation between the, the limited and the unlimited. I mean, you can call it anything you want, finite, infinite, whole, partial. And, and we're always on the short end of the stick as human beings. Uh, and this is not to, uh, Melvin T. Smith was not uh, advocating, or he was not saying that, Therefore, the infinite is unimportant or the, the sacred or the divine is unimportant. He just said it can't be put into the history without a bad, uh, he didn't say it this way, mangling perhaps, maybe a warping, a twisting, or at least a misrepresentation for one reason, because we don't have direct access to Joseph Smith. 
we don't have direct access to Brigham Young. And, and Dan Vogel's essay brings that out. Vogel, Vogel is aware of that. And yet he says, I, we, we do have clues that we can utilize in order to get a better understanding of Joseph Smith. So that's what makes it somewhat fun. And uh, so that's basically what I wanted to do. Hey, Debbie Joe and Patty Cake, too. You guys are all here. Scott, welcome, welcome. Gail Capson, welcome, dear. I'm glad you guys are all here. I'm trying this through my StreamYard. Um, this is my first time through StreamYard, so I hope it works. Uh, uh, oh, no, yeah, Debbie Joe, it's all good. You, you can go back and watch the front from, from beginning to end. Um, I do have them scheduled tomorrow morning at 10 and tomorrow night at 6. Uh, just go to the Mormon Discussion, Inc. and join in, and, and it'll notify you. Hit the notify me button. So anyway, uh, I do want to thank everybody for all of your support. And I do appreciate everything that you guys do for me. Um, I, I'm really glad that... Uh, I can research all of this stuff to share with you guys, even though sometimes I'm aware I, I can't possibly please everybody. <laughs> I gave up doing that a long time ago. I, I sincerely don't go try to go out of my way to offend anybody, but sometimes when I get offended, I let it get the best of me. And so I really come off of the rails, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm human. I, again, here we go. This finite theme that Melvin T. Smith was talking about. Great book, The Faithful History, if you can get it. The nice thing I loved about that, as well as this prophet puzzle. Now, there were probably uh, these guys got together. And this is the 1999 book, 22 years old already. And uh, there was a whole slew of various ways of looking into Joseph Smith in order to try to get a better understanding of just who was this dude and, and uh, why uh, is this so difficult to understand him? Partly, I think, because Melvin Smith, as Melvin Smith said, uh, we, because of the simple claims from Joseph Smith's day on, uh, infinity has bumped into finiteness but we are not capable of writing about that infinity so that's why melvin smith said yes let's keep it to the finite and why uh the other gentleman oh, i cannot remember his name um said we we must include yeah neil w kramer we must include god in our history so there's two approaches Vogel has kind of a middle road somewhat that I, that I found very fascinating. That's why I'm so excited that I can interview him tomorrow night, starting our series so that uh, we can get together and share some ideas. So anyway, you guys, uh, thank you for showing up. Uh, I am going to be on in the morning. I am going to go ahead and head off tonight. I have a lot of preparation work to do. So thank you for all your help and support. Don't forget to go. You can see it on the bottom of the screen, the backyardprofessor.org uh, to donate. If you can, if, if you can't, don't sweat it. Don't stop coming back because you can't, it's not about the money. So don't sweat it. No big deal. 
We are having fun learning information that helps us make better decisions. That's what I'm all about. That's, that's the direction I like to take for now. So anyway, hey, Splunky Doink, thank you for showing up. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Uh, I will do more on Dan Vogel. This whole weekend is Dan Vogel and Mormon History Weekend. Woohoo! So, all right, you guys. Thank you. I'm going to head out. Have a great night, and everybody be good and be safe.